Thank you, Brother Kirby. Thank you, team. <clears throat> Glad to be up here again this morning. Um, thankful for Kirby. He uh, asked a couple of weeks ago what I was going to be preaching on, and I told him, and he immediately said, all right, we're going to sing Jesus is Better as you lead up into the sermon. And I'm thankful for a man who's that attuned and invested in what he does, where I give him a topic, and he immediately has the perfect song for it. And I'm thankful for that song. And hopefully this morning as we look at God's word, we will see just what it means to be thinking that Jesus truly is better. Better than what? And what does that mean for our lives today? So this morning we're going to get to Colossians 3 eventually, but if you would, we're going to start off in Haggai. So <clears throat> Haggai's in the Old Testament. It's one of the minor prophets, so it's one of the ones that's harder to find. If you're not as familiar with your Bible, the easiest way to find it is probably just to go to the table of contents and find the page number, because if you're flipping through, you'll pass right over it. It's two short chapters, um, but we're just going to look at, um, we're going to look at a historical example first uh, in the life of Israel that will help us to see what we want to see about setting our minds on the things that are above this morning. So Haggai chapter 1, and we'll read the first 11 verses, if you'll follow along with me. <clears throat> the Word of God says, In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your panel houses while this house lies in ruins? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm, and he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house, that I may take pleasure in it, and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why? declares the Lord of hosts. Because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, on the new wine, and the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all their labors. Let's pray and we'll begin. Lord, I thank you uh, for the opportunity we have again to be here. God, I pray that... Uh, as I speak this morning, I pray that, Lord, your word would come through me. I pray that your word would be going forth where you've sent it and that you would bless it as such. Lord, I pray that you would help me, strengthen me, give me boldness to say what I ought to and wisdom not to say anything I shouldn't. And Lord, I pray that you would protect your hearers from any wrong thought that I may infuse in this. Lord, I pray that you would protect them from it, help it to just fall away and be forgotten. Lord, I pray now as we look at your word that you would open our eyes to see that you truly are better than anything else this world has to offer. 
Lord, I pray as we, as we come into this month, as we focus on missions, God, I pray that this would be a time that is helpful to us as a church body, and I pray that this would be a time that we can have our hearts stirred to see that there is a lost and dying world around us. So Lord, now I pray again for this time. Pray that your blessing would be upon your word, and for the sake of your hearers, God, I pray that you would attend your word, and God, I pray that you would speak through me this morning for your name and for your honor and glory. pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Um, if you are in my Sunday school class this quarter, uh, last week, Mike Britton taught on the preaching and how he talked about how there's expository and topical. This month, we're doing topical preaching. We're breaking up Chase's Romans exposition to do five uh, topical sermons as we look at the idea of missions. But hopefully this month, we will model for you what good topical preaching looks like as we exposit texts. And so hopefully this will be a good example of that as we are focusing on a topic instead of just going through a book of the Bible like Romans, but we're going to do that by digging into the Word of God, by digging into the texts and drawing the truths and the ideas from the Word of God. And so if you're in our Sunday school class, you, you saw that last week, hopefully we'll model that for you in the next five weeks. Um, if you're not in class with us, then you just have to deal with that, sorry. Um, <clears throat> so in Haggai 1, we have kind of an interesting, an interesting account and Haggai is a prophet, and he comes to the people of Israel with a word from the Lord, and the Lord is upset with the people of Israel. And he specifically tells them that you have labored, you have planted, you've watered, and you are not getting the fruit of your labor like you ought to be getting. And he gives them the reason. He says, you have been in drought, you are not reaping as much as you should considering how much you've sowed. And the reason for that is because they have spent time building their own houses and not worrying about the house of the Lord. They have let the temple lie in ruins while they've built up their own houses. Um, if you were here a month ago, uh, you may remember that I preached a sermon and I reached back to uh, an account with David in 2 Samuel 7 where David tells God he wants to build a temple and God basically tells him, that's not really my point. That's not really my focus. He didn't care if David built a temple. He, his main focus was, I want to have my people be my people. Well, now here in Haggai, we've got a, 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 an opposite kind of idea. That we've got God with a very different thought. He's looking at the people of Israel and says, you're letting my temple, which has been destroyed, lie in ruins while you've built your own houses, and drought has come because of that. So, where did, where did the change of mind come from? Why, why are things different now than they were in David's day back then? Well, to understand that, um, we've got to understand a little bit about what has happened in the time between then. David's reign as king was happening around 1000 BC, and these events would be happening near uh, the year about 500 BC. So you've got almost 500 years of difference between those two accounts. And what is... What has happened in Israel in that time? Well, you've seen the entire monarchy of Israel come through. So you've got David was the king, you had Saul, and then David, and then Solomon, and then the kingdom has split, and you've got the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, and then in 722 BC, the northern kingdom is basically wiped away. They, they are taken over by the Assyrian Empire, and the northern kingdom never comes back. And then in 586 BC, the southern kingdom goes into exile, and they are taken over by Babylon, and they spend 70 years there in Babylon in exile. 
basically not a nation anymore. They're, they're dispossessed of their home, they're displaced of their home, and they're, they're gone. And then 70 years after that exile has begun, they are freed and they're allowed to return to the land of Israel. So now you've got in the books of like Ezra and Nehemiah, the people are coming back to the land, they're rebuilding the, the, the land, they're rebuilding the temple, and um, that's a historical account of this. And so Haggai is a prophet during that time. He's, he's got Israel coming back into the land, they're getting established, and so they've, they've come back and now they're building houses but they've neglected the house of the Lord. And so why would, why would all of that make for a difference? Well, I think first and foremost, the people of Israel have already been established, and temple worship was something that had been established for a long time. When God told David he wasn't worried about having the temple built, he wasn't worried about the house he lived in, it wasn't the end of the story. It didn't just end there. He tells David, I'm worried about bringing up a people, not just having a temple. But then Solomon, David's son, gets the task of building the temple. So there is a temple that gets built in uh, shortly after David's time, and it, it's his son Solomon who builds it. And so for a couple hundred years, the people of Israel have instituted temple worship. And so there, this is the place where the Israelites come together to worship God. The Ark of the Covenant is housed inside of the temple. And for centuries, the temple is, is the thing. It's the monument. It is the key marker on the map for Israel. All of the worship is done there at the temple. It is on a hill, and it's, it's brightly lit with there's uh, braziers of fire, where at night, when they're lit, from miles around, you can see where the temple is. It's a central landmark for the people of Israel. And then when the exile comes, that gets destroyed. Uh, they are, they're invaded by Babylon. The temple is destroyed, and the people are carried away. So now that they're back, God has a heart to say, the temple needs to be rebuilt, not just so you have another landmarker on the map. He's not interested in getting Israel back on the map, back to their former glory. That's not the point. His point is, this is the place where you as a people come to meet with me. And so it's, it's a different instruction for the people of Israel at this time than it was for David back then, but the idea is the same. There's a consistency of thought, a consistency of idea there. God is concerned with great gathering people to worship him. His first concern was not the building, but now that they've had the building and it's been destroyed, that's how Israel is going to be worshiping God. So he, he tells the people of Israel, it is your job now to come back and rebuild this temple as a place of meeting, as a place of worship. And in Haggai uh, chapter 2 later, um, he even tells the people, look, some of you remember seeing the old temple and all of its glory and how big and great it was, and you're discouraged because you know this new temple that you're building is nowhere near that nice. I mean, think about when the temple was being rebuilt. Um, they were getting lumber from all around. Uh, people wanted to be in Israel's good graces, so supplies were coming in from all over the place because people wanted to be in the good graces of Israel, because they wanted to be in the good graces of Israel's God. And so it was, it was a massive undertaking. They had conquered the promised land, and Solomon, as a wise ruler, had been given control of surrounding areas as well, and they were funding this project. And it was quite opulent. It was very ornate. The old temple was beautiful. 
and he tells the people of Israel, now, look, you remember what that looked like. You know what that was. You saw that, and you're sad because you know a bunch of refugees coming back from exile are not going to be able to accomplish the same thing. So I understand that you're discouraged, but it is important that you build this. So again, we see God's, God's heart, God's mindset was the same thing. He's not as concerned with the building as he is with the people. He wants the people to have their hearts turned towards the things of God, even if that means they're meeting in a hut compared to the palace they were meeting in before. Even though this temple is not going to be as nice as the last temple, get there. Get it built. Have a place where you're going to come, where you're going to gather to worship. That's God's heart there. And in Haggai, he gives us this, this example, and he says he brings drought because they failed. Because they, because they waited to do this, they were suffering in the meantime. They were not gathering. They were not reaping what they had sowed. They were not getting as much as they should have been. And the reason for it comes in verse 8. In Haggai chapter 1, verse 8, he says, Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. The purpose that God has for all of this is for his own pleasure and his own glory. Now, if I said that, that would be really selfish and really pompous. If I asked you to do me a favor to glorify myself, that would be a bad thing. But it's not for God because he really is God. He's the creator of the universe. He owns it all and it's his. He's literally worthy of every bit of worship that mankind can offer. And if he's worthy of that, then what goal should anyone strive to accept this? What, what other goals on, in life do we have? What on earth are we doing if not aiming for that? For God's pleasure and God's glory. For his name to be honored. If he really is the king of the universe, if he really made this all, then he deserves everything. And so he deserves to have a place where he is worshipped. He deserves to have the people of Israel following his commands, rebuilding the temple to lift his name up. Um, in, in, uh, in verse 5, he, he kind of gives them the wake-up call. It says in verse 5, Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. For the, for the people of Israel, it's not that they were rebelling openly against God. They weren't idolatrous. They weren't in gross immorality. The cause of their problems here is that they had not considered their ways. In our hearts, in our lives, in our daily lives, we don't often think about hating God. We don't often think about being angry with God. We don't often find ourselves just totally jumping ship and going in the wrong direction. Typically, our failures in our Christian lives come when we fail to consider our ways. We get distracted, we get discouraged, and we neglect God. We don't, we don't often turn from loving God to hating God in a moment. It comes via a neglect, a gradual slow turning as our thoughts and our hearts and our minds, we stop, we stop thinking about what we think about. We stop thinking about what we do. And we just let the natural take over. 
it's natural for people getting into their land, coming back to their country, to build houses. That's a natural thing. They want a permanent place where they can stay instead of setting up camp all the time. That's natural concern, but God says they need to consider their ways because there was something bigger that they were missing. And that's, what, that's the problem that we fall into, I think, today. We don't consider our ways, and there is something bigger and better and greater that we, as the people of God, are often missing. And with that in mind, let's turn to Colossians 3. Colossians chapter 3. I'm just going to start with the first four verses there. I know it says 11, but I doubt we're going to get that far. Um, after last time I preached, I was lovingly informed by a few friends that I preached for a long time, which we got out by noon, so I didn't believe them until the next day when I went to the website, saw the recording was 55 minutes, and then I, they were right. So I've endeavored to make this a little shorter. So we're going to probably not get through all 11 verses, um, but we are going to start with the first paragraph he has in chapter 3, starting in verse 1, and we'll read through verse 4. Now this is Paul writing to the church in Colossians at Colossae. He says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So here as we, as we look at these verses in Colossians, Paul is writing and he gives one command. He states it twice in two different ways, slightly different ways. And it's based on life and death in Christ. Well, where do we, where do we see that? Where do we get that from? We'll jump back real quick to Colossians 2, starting in verse 8. Colossians chapter 2, verse 8. Paul writes and says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism in which you, you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. All right, so there Paul, Paul states that we are dead with Christ. We were buried with him. It's an odd statement. That's an odd way of expressing things. I don't remember dying. I don't remember that happening. I'm here. Like we don't, most people don't die and come back. There's something special about that one guy we did. That's why we're here. 
And so Paul brings this out that you were dead in him. So, so what does that look like? How does that happen? Well, he kind of gives us some, uh, some clues about that in, in these verses. It says, you died with him when you were baptized. So you didn't, you didn't really die. You didn't lose your life. But there is something that happened, not like a, a spiritual exchange, but that's a representation. When you were baptized, that was you in obedience following Christ and associating yourself with him. Baptism is a public profession, a public announcement of who you are and of what you've done. It is a public display of your faith in Christ. And so Paul's saying, look, when you were baptized in the Spirit, when you were baptized, when you professed Christ, when you announced that, when you committed yourself to Christ, there's a sense in which you died with him. And when you came up out of the water, there's a sense in which you were raised with him. You are raised with Christ. You were dead with Christ. In your following of Christ, which we symbolize when we take the Lord's Supper, when you associate yourself with Christ, you don't associate just with the things he said, because he wasn't just a good teacher, not just a good moral teacher. No, he's important because of what he did. When you associate with Christ in baptism, you associate with his death and resurrection. And that's the cause, that's the basis on which he gives this command. Verse, chapter 3, verse 1, If then you have been raised with Christ, which he says you have, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. He tells them that your life is hidden with Christ. If you've done this, if you've trusted in him, if you have associated yourself with Christ, then your very life is hidden with him. Which brings, that, that, that means something. There's significance to that. Um, Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. I'll turn there and read it. You don't have to turn there. Galatians chapter 2, this is Paul writing again, but he kind of gives it a different, a different perspective, a different spin on it. Paul writes and says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. He's saying, I don't, I don't live my life according to the law, because that would make what Christ did worthless. But I live my life understanding that what Christ did was substantial. What Christ did has meaning. What Christ did changes every moment of my life to the extent that I am crucified with him. It says, the life that I live in the flesh, I don't live. That's Christ living through me. That's a, that's a high, that's a lofty goal. But Paul here is saying that Christ himself lives through us if we are following him. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. Every aspect of it, every moment of it, every decision that you make is hidden with Christ in God. 
And there are, there are times when that's kind of automatic, and there are times when we have to really concentrate on that. If you think about it, how many, how many decisions do you make in a day total? And compare that with how many decisions do you stop, get out a sheet of paper, list the pros and cons, and then think through all the consequences Think about what would be the most Christ-honoring and glorifying way to do this, and then go forward. So there's very few times, very few decisions I make where I'm really sitting down and evaluating it. Which way do I go to work in the morning? Pretty typical. It's the same way I go every day because it's the quickest. I found that out once, and I stuck with it because that just makes sense. What, what, I mean, just think about the little, the basic things. What am I going to have for breakfast? I might, I might take a minute at the fridge while it's open kind of mulling. Well, I've got that and that. But that's not, that's not something I'm really weighing the pros and the cons and the spiritual implications of eggs or breakfast cereal. That's, that's not, that, that sort of stuff is automatic. Like what, what shirt am I wearing to work today? What pants am I wearing to work today? Well, I wore black yesterday, so today's khaki. There's, there's not a lot of import to that. There's not a lot about that. Those things flow out of the automatic nature of this. Those decisions come naturally out of what's stored up in, in spades. So where does, where does that come from? That's where we get the decisions that we do, we do make, where we do sit down, we do think things through. We, can, we do that to help us make a better decision. So how do we help ourselves make better decisions? How do, we, how do we help ourselves to make better decisions when the decisions are automatic? The decisions don't require a lot of thought. How do you, if you're not thinking about it, how do you make a better decision there? Well, that's what has to overflow out of, out of what's naturally there. That has to overflow from what's in you. It's sort of like the illustration people give of... Uh, uh, making tea, you've got tea in the tea bag, you stick it in the hot water, and tea is what comes out of that bag. What's, whatever is in the bag is going to come out when you put it in the hot water. That's the same thing with us. It's a trite, cliched illustration I've probably heard a thousand times, and you probably have too, but bear with me. That's the same thing with our own lives. What's going to come out of the, the reflex decisions, the ones we don't think about? It's what, you, it's what you've stored up in here. It's what you've built up. And so what do, we, what do we do about that? How do we, how do we make sure that those decisions are good? Well, you, you store up, you build up spiritual capital, so to speak. This is why he tells them, if you then have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. He's telling them, the way you go through your life is based on the reality that Christ died for you and you are in Christ. So what do you do with that? What are the results of that? What is the outpouring of that? You take care to think about the things you're doing. Evaluate the things you're doing. Evaluate the choices you're making. Are they choices made naturally or made based on the realization of who Christ is and what he's done for you? The people, the Israelites in Haggai, they came back to their land. They had been in exile and they did what came naturally. We're back home, let's rebuild our houses. If we wanted to start building the temple, it wouldn't be any good compared to the old one, so we'll just put that on the back burner. 
we're just going to get here and we're going to establish ourselves. We're going we're to set our feet and build our own houses again. That's a natural decision. And the charge that God laid against them was, you are not considering your ways, Israel. You have not taken thought. You have not evaluated the decision-making process that you're using. And here, Paul is encouraging all of us to modify the way we make those decisions. And how do we do that? We work to setting our mind on the things that are above, not on the things that are below. So then, what are, what are the things that are below? This is where we will briefly read the rest of verses uh, 5 through 11 in Colossians. <clears throat> Colossians 3, 5 through 11 Paul gives us a a specific example immediately. He says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. In In these, you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, uncircumcised and and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. So the first thing to do is you have to kill sin in your life. Last week when Chase was preaching, he talked about how um, our hearts and our minds get turned over to the things of this world. And here Paul is telling us, if you want to have victory, you have to put your sin to death. There are sins in this life, and he lists several, there are sins in this life that will take over if you let them. They will draw you away from Christ, they will send you on a road that is just consistently dragging you further and further and further away from Christ. It is not consistent with a person whose life is hid with Christ in God. And if you want to make better choices, if you want to make better decisions, if you want to consider your ways for God's honor, for God's pleasure, then you have to find those sins in your life and put them to death. And the means by which you do that oftentimes is by setting your affections on other things. I think beyond this, look, think about um, uh, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. Uh, the author there says, uh, seeing as how we are surrounded by such a great company of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin that entangles us so easily and run with patience the race set before us. So he talks about the sin that besets us so easily. He also says, let us lay aside every weight. I think there are earthly things that are not sinful that are a lot of dead weight in our lives. And I think this is where we often get into trouble because this is where we get distracted. This is where we become neglectful. I'm talking about just the mundane, everyday things that are not, they're not sinful. Morally, they're just there. They're, just, they're morally neutral, you could say. They are not great. They're not terrible. They're not sinful. They don't dishonor God but it's something that can really distract you from the things of the Lord. What does that look like typically in America? I think a lot of times we worship sports or celebrity. We're so caught up with our own comfort, 
trying to get a promotion at work, trying to get a raise, just want a little bit more money just to get a little more comfortable. A lot of times we can focus too much on politics, competition, whether it's at work or with friends or whatever, just the, the idea of vindication, I want to feel like I'm the best. Seeking after that feeling of vindication. Progress, technology, you want to have the newest, coolest, fun gadget. Nothing necessarily wrong with these things. You got a friendly rivalry at work where you and a buddy are going for the same position. You want to push yourself to get it, that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. You want to have a house, all right, that's fine. I have a house, that's there's nothing wrong with having that. These are fine things, but if your focus is turned to these things, then they are a weight which distracts you. These are earthly things. Now, there's a sense in which we live in America. We, we, we live in this economy. You have to have money to eat, and you have to eat to survive and provide for your family. That's true. That's just the way of the world. It's frustrating at times but that's just the way of it. But if that is your focus, if that's, if that's where you begin and end your thought process, then your mind is set on earthly things. Or there's an, infinite num- there's an infinite number of distractions and entertainment and clubs and teams for your kids to do. There is no shortage of distractions on this earth. Things that are fine, Facebook, Twitter, whatever, All these things are fine in and of themselves. There's nothing wrong with these. But if they consume your heart, if they consume your life, then it's taking you away from Christ. It's taking your heart away from the things that deserve it. Facebook, your car, your house, your kid's soccer team, your job, those things do not deserve your heart. They're going to pass away. Um, at the end of Colossians 2, Paul kind of talks about that. He's like, you're worried about these asceticism and like all this, these ritual cleanness things and you're worried about always making sure that all your food is clean and that your hands are clean when you're eating food and you think that's the way to spirituality, that's the way to godliness is just like always punishing yourself and making sure everything's clean. He says, all of that stuff, the food you eat is going to pass away. The stuff, the tools you're using, all of that is going to go away. That's not valuable. That's not worth you. What is? What is worth you? Well, it's, that's where Paul grounds this in verses 1 through 4. Your life is hid with Christ in God. Christ is worth it. The Lord of heaven and earth, the creator of this universe, the king of the world, he is worth you. He's worth your heart. He's worth your time. He is worth your life. And because of that, Paul says, let's stir up our affections. Let's set our affections on those things. This is, this to me is never more real. This idea, this thought is never more real than when I'm trying to prepare a sermon or a Sunday school lesson. Because there's a sense in which that is work. It's going to take time away from me wasting time and doing whatever I find fun and whatever I enjoy, like those, those things, like watching TV or movies or whatever. Like, I, I enjoy those things, and when I think, oh, man, I gotta preach a month from now or I'm teaching next Sunday, it's, it, it's taking me away from the things I can sit still on the couch and do and just consume entertainment and enjoyment from. 
And so there's a, there's a sense in which preparing for a sermon or preparing for a Sunday school lesson or whatever it is, that's hard. And when it's, when it's out there in the distance and I'm like, oh, I know I need to take care of that. I know I need to do that. It's, it's a weight that's kind of hanging over me and it's like, oh man, I got to get to that. And it just, it seems so unfun. <laughs> it seems like work. It feels like work. It does not seem enjoyable. But then when I finally like put everything away, turn everything off and I'm like, all right, I got to do this. When I open the Bible and I start reading it, it's amazing. It's amazing how God shows himself and how living with God and reading his word is glorious and wonderful and beautiful and it's enriching. And anytime, if you have to teach, you have to study it, you have to really dig in and dive in at a, at a, a, a level that you don't necessarily have to in your day-to-day life, in your day-to-day reading, or if you're out there listening, you're hearing a sermon, but you're really only hearing like 10% of all the time that's been put into all this. And so when you're digging into this, you're studying it, you're looking up other references, you're going all across Scripture, you're, you're finding out about God. You're remembering about the God of the universe, And you dig into this and you you stir up your affections by doing this. And I don't know how it is every time I forget about that. It seems like every time when there's a new lesson, a new sermon coming up, it's just, it goes back to that old feeling of, oh, there's a lot of work I got to do coming up. And it doesn't seem like fun. But every time, once you're back in the Word, once you're studying that, then it's like, how did I forget how awesome this is? How did I forget how reading about Haggai is going to shape my mind, going to shape my heart to a sermon on Colossians? How did I forget that the same God of the Old Testament who's working through his people is working in me today? How do I forget that? Well, usually it's just because of the distractions of this life. The distractions of this world, the mundane, the day-to-day. And if I'm so caught up with those things, if I'm consumed with the mundane day-to-day, what am I wearing to work today? What am I eating for breakfast today? If I'm concerned with all those little things, and if that's all that gets any time in my brain, then coming back to the Word of God is always going to feel like work. It's always going to seem like it's not very fun until I force myself to get over that and get back into the Word again. I have to stir up my thoughts. I have to stir up my affections. I have to set my affections on the things above. It does not happen naturally. And in our culture, it never will. Because you are pulled in a hundred different directions all the time. And there is no one in this world who wants you to love God like God does. Even your Christian friends are not going to measure up to that. But most of the influences you get to are not pushing you in that way. If you know me, you know I work at FedEx. There's not a single thing FedEx does with an eye towards making me a better Christian. The TV shows that are on TV, the movies that are being made, the commercials of people selling me stuff, that is not where I'm going to get a good influence to stir up my affections for Christ. They're pulling me towards their own means, their own ends. FedEx just wants to make more money for the shareholders. I'm reminded of that regularly. Phone companies want you to buy their phone. Restaurants want you to eat at their restaurant. All these places have their own goals in mind, and none of them are pulling me towards Christ. They are distractions at best. 
So how? How then do we go ahead and set our affections on the things above? Well, we've kind of already brushed on it a little bit. Where do we hear from him? Where, where does this come from? Where do we know what the things that are are above? It's, it's, it's here. You've got to spend time stirring up your affections. And that can come in different ways. Um, the most obvious is just read it. Get, get to it. Just read it. Find a time that works best for you. Um, I always, like in college, there was a big push, and they were always, uh, I went to a Bible college, and one of the big pushes was they always encouraged everybody, wake up an hour earlier than you have to and read your word and pray. Always in the morning, that's how you know the guys who are really spiritual, because when you wake up to go down the dorm hallway to the shower room, you got three guys already dressed, ready, reading their Bible. Those are the spiritual guys. Don't always work like that. For me in college, a lot of times, it was at night. And now, um, now in my house, the easiest time, the best time, I'm spent by the end of the day. I can't do that anymore. But there's always a time, like my, my schedule and my roommate's work schedule are offset enough to where every day I come home from work, I've got at least an hour or two before my roommate gets home. So I've got that time in the house by myself. And that's just, that's the time that works best for me. So find a time where reading your Bible is easiest and spend it there, invest it there. So read your Bible, pray. Reading your Bible is how God speaks to you. Praying is how you speak to God. Spend time praying. Talk to God. Tell him about your frustrations. I think one of the things in, when I was in college that really shaped my mind about how we relate to Christ is reading people in the Old Testament's prayers. When you look at Abraham and Moses' prayers to God, when they talk to God, they're really audacious sometimes. God tells Moses, get up, you're going to go to Egypt and lead my people out of Egypt. And Moses says, no, I'm not. Says, I can't do that. Moses, Moses stands up and just says, I'm not a good speaker, find someone else. And uh, uh, I think it's, yeah, Abram is, uh, when God tells Abram he's going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, and Abraham is pleading, well, if there's 50 righteous people, would you save it then? And God says, sure. And he's like, all right, well, how about 40? And he keeps going. He talks God down to 10. Like, I can't imagine like, how sheepish he's getting. Now, don't get mad at me. I know you just agreed to 20, but 10? Like, and just, just realize, like, this, is how, this is how God it was spoken to in the past. And he didn't, he didn't kill Moses for saying no. I think if I were God at that point, I might have. I think the same thing with Abraham. I mean, Abraham's like, well, what if I find 50 people? I said, no, Abraham, I'm going to do this. But he's, he's patient, he's gracious. He's, he's, willing to, he's willing to walk with us. And so pray. Even if you don't know how to, even if you don't know what to say, there is, there is a real, um, there's a real benefit and value to just telling God exactly what you're feeling. Because the fact of the matter is, he knows, doesn't he? If you're upset, does God know about it already? So why are you afraid to tell him? You're not hiding it from him. If you're upset, if you're going through a tough time, if you do not understand, what, God, why are you doing this in my life? That's not a bad question to ask. Jesus was on the cross, and he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Asking God why is okay. Do it with a humble spirit. You're, you will emotionally be upset, I get that, so does he, 
but ask and be willing to receive his answer with a humble and a meek spirit, knowing that he is the Lord of the universe. But don't be afraid to pray just because you think you're going to pray wrong. Don't be afraid to pray because you don't know what to say. Just start talking. It'll come out. It'll find its way. The Lord is going to work through you if you're his. Another way to do it is just listening. Find good Christian music that sings the truth of God's word back to you. There's, it's, it's out there. Find some. We sing a lot of it here. Uh, find, like, if you, any of the guys who have led, ask them. They will, like I said, I'm, I'm thankful for Kirby because I told him a theme and he had the song right off the top of his head. There are guys who are like that. They've got songs, like, cataloged in their brain that can help you. So find those guys, ask them for resources. Where do I find good Christian music? Because a lot of times Christian radio is just disappointing. But there's better stuff out there. I'm just going to throw that out there. Uh, there's better stuff out there. It exists. It's real. Go to the guys who lead worship and get some. That will be very helpful to you. And uh, also there are other preachers that I have found helpful in my life. Um, uh, if you have sat in any of my Sunday school classes, at some point in time I quoted John Piper because he's very helpful to me. He's, he's very emotional and he drives the way I think kind of follows that. And he's trying to get at the heart of people to have an affection towards God. So I find that very helpful. Matt Chandler is another guy who I listen to who's very helpful to me. Uh, Matt Chandler is the, like, John Piper is the emotional guy who wants to just, like, shepherd you and carry you along to Jesus. Matt Chandler is the guy who, like, puts you on a leash and pulls you. He's, he's a little more in your face about it, but he's, he's very helpful in a spiritual sense, and sometimes that's what I need. Um, so find good sermons, good music, find things to listen to. So read, pray, listen, and meditate. The way that you are going to shape your heart and your mind to do these things is by meditating and taking time. Think about what you're doing. Think about the choices you are making because when you think about the choices you're making, that's going to cause your heart to be turned back to God. If you never think about it, you're going to go the wrong direction. But if you think about the choices you're making, if you set your mind on the things that are above, if you stir that up in you, you'll be going the right direction. How is it that we send a team to Haiti? Why is it that there are college students going to the Middle East and the Far East on missions trips? You think Haiti is a good place to vacation? I don't, I don't get that sense. I've not been there yet myself. I plan to go one of these years in the near future. But talk to the people who have been to Haiti when they get back and ask them how pleasant it was. How was their resort stay? It's, it's, not, it's not for a vacation because they have their mind set on something higher. They have their mind set on something greater. They truly believe that Jesus is better. More than any comfort, than any sorrow, more than any riches, they truly believe that Jesus is better. They've stirred their thoughts up. They've set their affections. They've set their minds on the things that are above. They realize that if Jesus is truly worthy of all of our lives, if, our, if my life is truly hidden with Christ in God, then he deserves a week of my life to take a trip to Haiti. They believe that and it consumes them and the natural overflow of their lives and the decisions that they don't think about will start to reflect that. The more you stir up your affections on the things of God, the more the automatic decisions are going to follow suit in that way. Set your affections on the things of God. That's how we grow. 
And until we do that, as we kind of bring this in, as, uh, as we focus on missions this month, if you are focused on the things of this earth, if you are not focused on the things above, missions won't make any sense. If you're focused on getting a new job, getting a nicer house, getting a nicer car, making sure that your kids are involved in as many activities as possible, if that's where your focus is, missions doesn't make sense. It just gets in the way. Think about all the things you could have spent with the money on the trip to Haiti for those who went, these missions trips to the Middle East and the Far East for those who went. If you didn't give when we took up the offering this morning, how much could you be saving? How much could you be spending otherwise? If you don't have your mind set on the things above, spending your time, spending your money on the things of Christ doesn't make any sense. You could spend those things elsewhere. Enjoy more. <laughs> you buy a bigger TV. Missions can only happen if you have stirred up your affections, if you have set your affections on the things above. So that is my challenge to you today. I'm just going to read verses 1 through 4 again to kind of draw us to a close. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this day. God, I thank you for your word. God, I thank you that it is rich and it is true and that it is full of your blessings. God, I thank you. I thank you so much that you truly are better. Lord, we're, we're thankful that we live in America. We're thankful for the freedoms that we have. We don't want to take that for granted. The sacrifices people have made for us to enjoy these freedoms, to enjoy these opportunities that we have. We don't want to take that for granted, but Lord, our citizenship is in heaven, as we read in Philippians. So more than that, more than just being a, a good, proud American, Lord, I pray that you'd help us to stir up our affections for you. You can be a good American citizen as long as it's subservient to following Christ. Lord, I pray that you would help us to see that. I pray that you'd help us to realize that. God, I pray that you would work in our hearts. And God, I pray that you would encourage us all to have a right mindset, to set our affections on the things that are above, to set our affections on you. Lord, knowing that there is a lost and dying world out there around us, and we'll only reach them if our hearts and our minds are turned toward you. So God, I thank you for this truth. I thank you for your word. God, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for all those who are here. And Lord, I pray that you would be honored and glorified as we worship here this morning. Pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Would you guys stand as we